You're in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast, and welcome to it. It's Saturday. We made it through another week, folks, and we're excited to begin part two of our book study of The Animal Farm, which we began last week when Garrett and I dug into chapters one, chapters two. We gave you some homework. Read chapters three and chapter four for today. We're going to get into that in a minute here. Uh, wanted to make sure that we remind you while you're with us, if you're in the chat, that uh, you give us a like and you follow the show. We see a lot of uh, people watching the show that are not giving us the likes. Come on, folks. If you want to you want to keep getting these nuggets of knowledge here that we're giving you about, uh, you know, the animals on Animal Farm, the things that your ninth grade teacher didn't give you, come on, you got to smash that like button. But uh, we appreciate you spending your Saturday with us. We come to you every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at noon Eastern time. Uh, you can join us in the chat on Rumble. Or you can listen to the podcast on iTunes and iHeart and Spotify and all those other forums. And if you want to do that, you can subscribe so you can get the automatic uploads whenever the new episodes drop for you to enjoy. We're going to get to Animal Farm Part 2 today. Let's bring on Garrett at GOB Actual. How are you doing today, sir, on a Saturday? Doing good. Uh, really looking forward to getting into this. I've had some good uh, feedback from last Saturday's episode, and honestly, like I'm enjoying doing it. So, you know, Steve and I, we were talking earlier uh, offline about about how it's been decades since we read this in, in fresh freshman year of high school, and how I'm finding that I don't remember as much as I thought I did. Like I remember some of the core elements, but like it's just it's fun. It's it's good. Uh, it's, 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 it's a good mental exercise for us to tie it into some of the news of the day and some of the things we're seeing in America or across the world. And, uh, you know, time ticks on, but humans, we don't really change. George Orwell wrote this story and, or it was published in 1945. And here we are, you know, 80 years later, essentially. And, you know, it's the same, same circle of life that humans go through. So. You know, was one of my takeaways before we get into chapters three and chapters four. One of my uh, takeaways that I failed to address on one and two was how George Orwell does a really good job of sucking you in to liking the animals and rooting for the animals and sort of putting yourself and being empathetic to their their plight. The fact that yeah, you know what they're doing all the work. Why shouldn't they get all the all, all the credit and all the um, all the harvest. It should go to them too. And and he does a really good job because the, the characters, uh, so many of them are eminently likable um, and, and smart. And you just, you kind of want to be their friends and you, you admire the character qualities of so many of them. Um, and, and that is just uh, a, a gift that he gives you because as we will see, as things progress with the animal farm, um, it is that much more tragic when uh, things go awry. And they do go awry. Um, one of the one of the uh, I, I just thought of this before we started doing the the book review. I was just doing a little background on George Orwell just to learn a little bit more about him. I, I I'll try to find it maybe for next time um, to get like the direct quotes. But I think it was like an essay he wrote, or I don't remember exactly. But uh, he was talking about how, um, or maybe we actually talked about it last week about how he this was like the first story he wrote where he put in like more effort than usual to, to uh, basically cross the streams of, of fiction and uh, modern history and what, what the world was going through. And, you know, as we, we know, it's, it's kind of, it's an allegory. We did talk about that last week, an allegory for the Bolshevik revolution, but uh, definitely the way he writes and draws you in, because if you think about it, man, it's animals who are talking and, and raging a rebellion against Mr. Jones and the farm. Like, you would think adults would just write this off. Or even young adults, like freshmen in high school. But as a grown man now, at least in theory, uh, I still find myself just kind of captivated by it. So 
it's it's fun it's cool yep and i think yeah, i i feel less guilty i'm i, I don't like to read fiction i feel like i just yeah. want to read things that really happened but allegory i can i can get behind that i mean it, it's supposed to symbolize something that actually did happen which was the russian revolution um and as we talk about allegory here uh wanted to lay out a couple more of the uh a couple more of the characters so we we covered down on uh on old major being representing Karl marx on Moses, the Raven, sort of representing the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, perhaps, because uh, that was the predominant faith at the time. And then even Molly just being kind of like the airheaded person who doesn't know about politics, right? Um, she just wants the ribbon, Steve. Just let her have the ribbon. And sugar. Yeah. But as the, uh, as the pigs are assuming the, the leadership role on Animal Farm, I do want to to talk about the three characters that are going to emerge. Uh, one being Snowball, uh, two being Napoleon, and three being Squealer. Now, uh, it will become clear that Snowball represents Trotsky, who was a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist, um, was sort of a, a almost like a a an administrator, a, an apparatchik. He he was all about pushing um the 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 marxist system of government and was a truly believing he he was less about uh, than others uh seeking ultimate power for himself i mean he wanted to be in a position of power amongst the ruling uh, powers that be but uh was sort of content to just be driving you know the different uh, arms and levers of the government was, was a, an administrator at heart uh, secondly is napoleon who uh, we we really haven't gotten too much access to in, in chapters three and chapters four. But uh, Napoleon will emerge as Joseph Stalin, who ultimately uh, assumed to be the, the dictator of the, uh, the Soviet Union. And then Squealer, who we will get to at the very end of chapter four. Uh, he is Molotov, who was the chief propagandist for Joseph Stalin. And uh, he's the messenger. He's the guy who who shapes and cultivates the message for for the masses so that uh, they come around to the pig's line of thinking. Um, and uh, and we'll jump, though, into Chapter 3. And it says that the pigs did not actually work, but directed and supervised the others. With their superior knowledge, it was natural that they should assume the leadership. Well, how many times does it seem like the person's like, I don't know how to do your job, but I know you're doing it wrong. Uh, I'm a manager. <laughs> I mean, in my experience, especially in government work, it seemed like just about every single manager fit that bill. But that's it's interesting you pulled that quote. That's one I pulled as well. And it's I don't know if it's because it's just so simple. The pigs did not actually work, but directed and supervised the others. Like just he just lays it out there for us. And then I don't know. It's it's something it's gotta be a just a mix, maybe, of how Orwell writes maybe uh, having read it in the past and then just a little bit of life experience thrown in there. It's like, you know who these pigs are. We all have had them in our life. We all maybe deal with them today. Even, you know, like I even think of my short time in the FBI and about the managerial roles there. Like allegedly these people were FBI agents for a time, but it seems more and more that uh, at least in the FBI, they'll be an agent for three, four or five years. And then they just start climbing the ladder. And then by the time they're your boss, like they really have no clue how to do the job. And they probably didn't really have a clue back then, but they've got some intellect. They've got some drive. They've got some desire to assume a leadership role, which in my experience, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but in my experience, almost always the people who are seeking that role are not the ones suited for it if you're in a group of people and they're like hey we need somebody to be in charge the guy who puts his hand up first like is definitely not the one you want to be in charge the person whose whose passion is in promotion because their their passion isn't actually in leading men um it's in getting to the next spot and it means that they're in a position that they have no interest in they will just do what is necessary to turbocharge their career trajectory to get to the next level, the next rung on the ladder, which has always been sort of uh, 
a head scratcher to me about our military because you can enter an enlisted service, you can enter into a commissioned service. And um, it's basically like I'm applying to be a leader, right? If you enter as an officer. And it always struck me as, well, aren't you missing out on these these non-commissioned officers, like these these upper level enlisted guys? Like, wouldn't they be more naturally promoted to officer ranks? I'd, yeah, I, you would think. And even think of think of like Band of Brothers. There were a couple guys in there who were battlefield commissioned. So here they are, NCOs. They're doing the work. They've been trained in all the proper ways. Then they go and they fight and they excel. And it's clear that even as an NCO, they they are excelling. And the the the, the higher echelon officers typically then recognize and say, you know what, we're going to promote you to to second lieutenant. That doesn't happen anymore. And it's actually really bizarre. Like I think of my time in the infantry, you had, so typically speaking, the oldest person in your platoon was your platoon sergeant, most experienced. In my experience, I had some really great platoon sergeants. Like I, I'm trying to think like maybe the very last one I had after we got back from Afghanistan, we had like a change of command. That guy was kind of a, not great, but overall, like, some of the best leaders I had were my platoon sergeants and rightfully so that's a good structure. But then the, the newest leader is the Lieutenant. So they've been in, you know, ROTC or maybe they went to West point or whatever, or, you know, what, whatever other ways you can get commissioned. And here they are, they get plucked, you know, they get placed into this platoon and technically they're the, they're in charge. They're the only officer in the platoon. I mean, typically speaking, like they do that so the platoon sergeant can kind of teach the second lieutenant. But in my experience, it was like 50-50, maybe even 60-40, where it was 40% good leader, 60% bad leader, because you're getting this, this kid out of college and, you know, put into this role. And sometimes they would think, oh, I'm in charge. I'm the lieutenant. And that was typically a recipe for disaster. And yeah, I don't. I don't know. I can't. I, I don't. I don't know why they do it that way always because it doesn't seem like it would be best. It's it's just one of those weird things, and it seems to be unique to government. I mean, I, I think. Well, I mean, with the exception of some of these Fortune 500 companies, that they'll go out and actually seek a CEO um, who has experience at that level. Um, but if you're a mid-sized company uh, or or smaller, like you, you've worked your way up through the ranks of that company, really. It, um, you've learned the nature of the business. I think that uh, that has a lot of benefit if you've gotten your hands dirty and then, you know, assumed other positions along the way, you can really develop an appreciation for what other people are doing and then know the company, the ins and outs really well, and make the, the best decisions. But when it comes to the military or we could both speak to the FBI, it, it's just, you know, there's a job opening and I'm going to take it and I'm going to be in charge and I'm uh, going to make my impact to the, the level that's necessary in order to uh, get my next job. Mm -hmm. I don't really care about the mission going forward. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of times I think, especially of the FBI, probably similar for you. A lot of times these people move into a position that they don't even have any interest in, but they know <laughs> it's the step. It's the step they got to take. And it's like, that's, that's that also sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yes. Well, I and I had the unique experience of working that real niche area on the Indian reservation. So I would get program managers, which for those who don't know, it's one of the introductory steps to get into management. So you go, you apply for a program manager position. You got to go back to headquarters for 18 months. Uh, and then you're going to have oversight of some small quarter of the of the of the bureau that's going to be your area and i would have a program manager every 18 months would contact me checking in hey i'm your new program manager and not one of them had ever worked on an indian reservation and they were theoretically my supervisor they were controlling my program and the yeah. funds and just and they were just just kind of minding time waiting 18 months so they could say that they had oversight of violent crimes occurring on Indian reservations and then take credit for cases that we worked. And, uh, they would always ask, you know, for a check-in on a case that sort of piqued their interest and say, Hey, what's going on with that case? And I, for a, a time, I just never really thought anything of it. I thought, well, that's, it's already been investigated. You know, he's pleading guilty and they're like, Oh, okay. And 
what I was come to find out was they were putting their names on some element of my case, and then they could take credit for that case course, and say that they yeah. had managerial responsibility for it. Of course, always off the backs of others, which that's another theme we will continue to see in Animal Farm. But yeah, it makes me think of, you know, I think I think of this guy I knew. He seemed like an awesome guy. He was on SWAT with us, but uh, with me, but um, he uh, transferred to head, well, did a TDY to headquarters to go to like the CT program. Dude never worked a day of CT in his life. And he was not excited about it, but he's like, well, that's the TDY I could get. So he would like try to act like, yeah, I, I am actually excited to, to see that part of the FBI. And it's like, no, you aren't, dude. You were working like Talk West, like you were loving that. And it makes it just makes logical sense. Okay, you work Indian crimes for four years or eight or 10, and now you want to get promoted. We're going to put you in the in the Indian country program. Because you know it, like you're a subject matter expert, (laughs) right? But no, we'll just take whoever we can get who's going to spend 18 months here, maybe 15, because then they're going to actually apply to the next, you know, promotion they're seeking and pack their bags and they're out of here at right at the 18 month mark. It just is insane. But that's your FBI, folks. So on the backs of others, I'm glad you brought that up for the the next uh, issue we want to talk to here. And we are talking about Animal Farm, Chapter 3 and Chapter 4 here on the American Radicals podcast. We're doing this book study every Saturday. I think it's going to take us five Saturdays. I think this book is 10 chapters long. We'll do two each Saturday. Um, And uh, he becomes, I think, uh, an easy favorite character for just about anyone reading uh, Animal Farm, and that is Boxer. And Boxer, his answer to every problem, every setback was, I will work harder, which he had adopted as his personal motto. Yep. This what also, you... <laughs> go ahead, sorry. No, I said, you know, what What do you think, uh, who do you think Boxer is representative of? Dude, he's the lay person who just is all in for the cause. Just like whatever, for whatever reason, like the Kool-Aid was perfect. I can't get enough. Give me more. And I, I pulled the same quote. I actually pulled the 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 whole paragraph because I I guess as I read, as we get in, introduced to these characters, I think of people I've encountered in my life. And I think, you know, and I, I know they're uh, a little bit exaggerated here uh, just for emphasis sake. I mentioned it last week. We've all encountered these type of people. Like we've encountered the Mollies, the Boxers, the Napoleons, the Snowballs. We've encountered them all. And if you think back to your uh, on your life, you, I think you'll realize like, oh, yeah, I have encountered that type of person, you know. But um, the broader paragraph here is says Boxer was the admiration of everybody. So he's off to a good start, you know, like everybody. And I find myself actually really liking Boxer. Like, dude works hard. He doesn't complain. Uh, he He actually, I'll take on even more of a load. And well, it says right here, he had been a hard worker even in Jones's time. But now he seemed more like three horses than one. There were days when the entire work of the farm seemed to rest on his mighty shoulders. From morning to night, he was pushing and pulling, always at the spot where the work was hardest. He had made an arrangement with one of the cockerels to call him in the mornings half an hour earlier than anyone else and would put in some volunteer labor at whatever seemed to be most needed before the regular day's work Before the regular day's work began. His answer to every problem, like Steve mentioned, every setback was... I will work harder, which he had adopted as his personal motto. And you know what? I think I need to adopt that motto for the-suspendables.com and uh, get get to work down there myself. So, um, which he's we'll a stud, that. man. He's, I mean, he's if, awesome. If you knew nothing else. I mean, and and you know, it, it comes out he's he's kind of a he's kind of a blockhead, right? He's yeah. he's, he's he's dumb, but uh, but he's likable. You know, like he's likable. And if you, if you told me anything about, you know, my, my kid, if my kid was like the guy that just wants to work his butt off, you know, he's the gym rat that, you know, or, or whatever it is up early, dude, I'll do extra. I got, I got it. Everybody loves that guy. That is a desirable quality. Uh, I think a personal attribute to have. Um, but it's also something that can be easily exploited by people who are of uh, higher intellect who yep. see that uh, not as a, uh, a quality that they should emulate. They're not going to take it on as the, the motto for the suspendable merch store. They're going to say, Oh, 
how can I use that to my advantage? And because he he wears his heart on his sleeve, he's not hiding that. He's not playing coy with it. He just wants to go. He's a people pleaser. He sort of represents this blind faith aspect of of the layperson of the of the working class uh, who were just going about their, their their regular business, and then they they thought for a time we've cast off the czar, right? Where it's a it's a new day. It's going to be the 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 workers' republic, and and we're going to own our own. This is the fruits of our own labor. Um, and you could see them being anxious and encouraged and excited to go about doing that work. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think that there are going to be um, forces who will will come to see who will take advantage of them for that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Spark notes of Boxer. <clears throat> Spark notes says that uh, the cart horse whose incredible strength, dedication and loyalty play a key role in the early prosperity of Animal Farm, as we just talked about. And the later completion of the windmill, which, sorry, a little bit of a spoiler there. Thanks to Spark Notes. Quick to help, but rather slow-witted, Boxer shows much devotion to Animal Farm's ideals, but little ability to think about them independently. He naively trusts the pigs to make all his decisions for him. And it's, I'm telling you, just think of people in your life. You know Boxer. You have encountered Boxer. Like, you've encountered these people. And I think that's why... Animal Farm for me stands out as just very poignant because Orwell did a really good job of 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 showing you like people like yes it's in the form of a horse or a pig but we encounter them we see them today we see them in our government we see them in politics we see them in the media you see the boxers on CNN who are going to you know dedicate their life to the cause and telling you how you also need to dedicate your life to the cause Yes, I don't think the CNN anchors actually work hard, though. That's but true. yeah, you can see them being all in for the cause. Uh, we'll get to the next character in a second, but want to uh, plug the show sponsor. That is True Earth Pharmacy. You can go to the website for the store. It's trueearth.co. And if you use the promo code AMRAD24, you can get 10% off the entire catalog of the store there. It is uh, fertilizers that if you look at the results, uh, it is simply amazing. If you want to take the personal supplement route, I can testify that uh, I have been taking the, the turmeric and the lion's mane and the mushroom uh, mixture and uh, have had good results. Uh, Despite the fact that I got the flu, that is not the fault of True Earth. That is the fault of being flu season. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm going to be on the mend uh, quicker than most because uh, I'm not going to do that whole thing where it makes your blood, you know, that Tamiflu stuff that you, you can't do like a blood transfusion for like six months because it's so toxic. Um, I'm going to rely already on the mend much better than I was. So <laughs> it's, I, I'm going to give props to True Earth to helping you out. They are, and they have, uh, you know, they, they gave me the new study about uh, the black turmeric actually having qualities that are assisting with uh, uh, fighting back on cancer. So I think that that's, that's fantastic. It's not just the anti-inflammatory, uh, but you can do your own research there. And, uh, and when you do, if you decide to, uh, to, pur to purchase anything from the store, go to trueearth.co and make sure that you use AMRAD24 at checkout to get 10% off. We'll go to the next character, um, and uh, this one I kind of chuckle at um, because I always, when I uh, when I address groups, I say, you know, we all learn pretty much at around age six or seven why communism fails, mm -hmm. um, and that's because around age six or seven is when you're doing work in class and the teacher assigns a group assignment, and there's that one turd of a kid who does nothing and then gets the same grade as you. Um, and, uh, that's the cat, right? <laughs> the behavior of the cat was somewhat peculiar. It was soon noticed that when there was work to be done, the cat could never be found. And then the cat comes in when it's time to eat. Right. Um, sorry, I had myself muted, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the cat again, I'm telling you, just think we all know the cat. Like I think of even when I was in college, so I was an adult, I, I, I've just gotten out of the army. Actually, this was later when I was finishing up my bachelor's degree as a cop and going to like night classes in this one class. And I remember thinking like, why lady, why are you, we're all adults here. Why are you assigning us to group projects? Yeah. And always without fail, my entire life, 
whenever I was assigned to a group project, the cat was in my group. And I bet it was in your group and everybody who's listening or watching, I bet the cat was in their group. Hopefully none of you are the cat, but um, yeah, the cat. And then like, I like, I, I don't have it uh, pulled up, but how he talks about like the cat, then the cat would, you know, they purred and uh, they always had a way of like explaining their absence away. And it's like, yeah, the sly cat, you know, maybe out on their own hunting for a mouse or something just to enjoy their own spoils, but never willing to pitch in, never willing to help. I'm not a fan of the cat or any cat for that matter. I despise cats actually. This, I'm, this I'm is definitely allergic to him too. But. This this is the flaw from each according to his ability, each according to his uh, his needs, um, because it, people can circumvent the system. They can shirk their responsibilities and say, "Look, I don't have to work hard. Um, other people will do it, and I can still enjoy the the spoils of their efforts." You know, I had the same experience in college. Um, I was in uh, in college from 2003 to 2007, and there was in business school. It was all about group work, group work, group work, group work, and it was infuriating because you had five classes and five different groups, and try to coordinate with all of them to meet throughout the week, and it was super frustrating. And it never failed. And you'd have these turds that just wouldn't do any work. They wouldn't even show up. And then at the end, it would be like, you know, well, where's my grade? And then I did have one. I did have one professor who she basically gave out uh, spear reports, <laughs> which you'll know from the military. Uh, they're they're called peer reports, but they're spear reports, right? Yeah. You can just like light up whoever is in your group. Yep. And her thing was, uh, it is one hundred percent. How much percent would you assign to each member of your group? And I just got he was he was a lacrosse player he was such a bonehead idiot yeah. and i was like zero <laughs> but zero and she called me in and she's like you're the only person that didn't get, do 25 25 25 25 in the entire entire class and i was like i don't care if i'm a narc that dude didn't do anything and yeah. i was they're being nice to give him 20 yeah <laughs> um, i go negative yeah no exactly take take points off the last you know, project he did. Um, I imagine you've encountered this if you had all that many group assignments. Like, you get with your group, you say, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna meet at the library at this time on this day or whatever," and then they, the cat, the cat doesn't show up. Of course, the cat doesn't show up. Oh man, the the I cat spy. doesn't show up, or it's it's the person that's like, "Oh well, uh, I like to you know my, my work habits are to work at." you know, midnight to 4am the night before it's due. Right. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to be doing anything until then. Yeah. If you guys want to do something before that, that's not on me. That's that's yeah. on you. So much for the good of the group, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but oh, hey, socialism or communism, they're going to work. Just wait. We just got to do it right. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I wanted to pull up an image here. And, uh, and this was the flag they eventually uh, they cut they cultivate for the animal farm um and if it's if it needs any clarification of to what actually this story is an allegory for um here's an image here you can see a stark resemblance between the hammer and sickle and the horn and the hoof of animal farm um this is the flag they eventually raise and and they wave at uh at you know to to symbolize it what their uh, what their farm is about and the green is supposed to be representing the the pastures and it's supposed to be the uh, the working together of all the animals um but just the the symbolism i think it's you know it's it's not overly complicated or sophisticated i think it's just a clear work by george orwell in a short story just saying like hey for those of you who don't know this is soviet russia <laughs> I love it. I love the simplicity of it. I don't know. I know I've, I've mentioned it about the characters. I'll mention it here about the flag too. Like it, it, it stands out on purpose. It's intentional. It's part of, it's part of the story, part of how and why George Orwell wrote it this way. But man, yeah, the, the starking uh, similarities is, I don't know. I say it tip of the hat to even that. Yeah. It didn't seem like it was completely, you know, necessary i mean but to go that far to actually give you an image uh yeah. I, I think is it's just is good on him as as an author to to paint the picture uh for what's been going on here uh move on 
And uh, this is where we're back to the pigs and how they are in this position of leadership. They're the smartest amongst us. Um, and they are continuing in their own education, but it's, they're enhancing their own education. Um, and, uh, at a greater rate than we'll see that the other animals are, are capable of. I mean, I think there's certain limiting factors between the ears that they're just not capable of doing things. The pigs are clearly more intellectual, uh, but they start learning things that they are not going to be capable of doing physically. Uh, so they're kind of setting themselves up to have the knowledge to be in a position of leadership and authority to tell people what to do. So the pigs set aside the harness room as a headquarters for themselves. Here in the evenings, they studied blacksmithing, carpentering, and other necessary arts from books, which they had brought out of the farmhouse. Well, I know one thing that kind of struck me with this one. Uh, wasn't the farmhouse never to be entered? Yeah, um, it's a museum, again. allegedly. But is it? Apparently, it's uh, it's not for the masters of the, the pig masters, because hey, they gotta learn. We gotta get this. We gotta keep this farm functioning. So, don't worry, we'll be able to explain it away, and we'll sneak in at night and grab a book. And because also, wasn't it uh, in the seven? Uh, I'll have to go back and look. I don't remember now, so I'll I'll, I'll refrain for now of of what I was gonna say. But but yeah, it's. It's already like it's peculiar, isn't it? If you're just thinking of it pragmatically, like, okay, what's going on here? Like, we're getting these little nuggets of the pigs, maybe already kind of not abiding by the rules that everybody agreed on. Mm -hmm. But hey, they they're learning now. They're learning more more rapidly. Yes, and I, and I just I I can't come off the the dynamic that they're permanently setting up for themselves because they're going to have the secret knowledge. The animals mm -hmm. are going to have to rely on them for directions and they're going to be, you know, wearing the, 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 wear the white hard hat, not the, uh, not the yellow one. They're going to be the supervisor on scene. Who's just pointing around, giving directions, but not actually experiencing the, the actual physical toil that is going to be required to, to manage this farm. And, and that's not to say that, you know, you don't need a supervisor, uh, calling shots here uh, the issue is whether or not uh, this knowledge is being offered to all the animals to partake in um, because th the way that the animal farm is set up is that all animals are equal and they're all supposed to be in this you know to and they bring different skills to the table but you know if if molly the horse wanted to uh to, to get that knowledge do you think the pigs would be uh, supportive of that i don't they would come up with some explanation as to why she can't have that knowledge because and you know how i know they'll do that because they do that they explain <laughs> things away as we'll see shortly but that's not to say that they don't actually try to give some baseline of education to to the animals um and uh it says the reading and writing classes however were a great success by the autumn almost every animal on the farm was literate in some degree, except for Boxer, he just knows like A, B, C, and D. <laughs> so he's he's not really uh, he's not really killing it in the classroom, uh, but he works hard. So you know you got to respect that. Um, but the 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 reading, um, the the claim, I I I was sort of reminded of the fact that these communist utopias that we're in modern day hear about all the time, all these far leftists are always bragging about the literacy programs that exist in these countries to almost wave away the sins um, that they have. Um, it's it's no different to me than saying, well, well, Hitler built the Autobahn, right? So we mm -hmm. should, you know, overlook the Third Reich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I and I did have a video that I do want to bring up by I, everybody's favorite American socialist, uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Bernie Sanders. And, uh, and we'll, we'll give this a play and then and, and react. It's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it about uh, the regime in, um, in Cuba. Uh, and he doesn't understand that healthcare in Cuba 
is just awful. That's why so many Cuban Americans are taking medicines down to Cuba. It's uneven. If you're rich, you might be able to get decent health care. But if you live out in the rural areas, it's not great. And their education system, give me a break. So I, I think that uh, he's way off, but, but he hasn't been down here to talk to residents to understand how our community, not just the Cuban community, but the Venezuelan community, the Nicaraguan community, feel about uh, socialism and about communism. That was, uh, uh, I think it was pretty good because uh, the, criticism, the criticism of Bernie Sanders came from someone on the left, right? That was Donna Shalala. Who, who, um, yeah, who understands it more because she comes from, I don't know if she was an immigrant. I don't think she was, but she comes from a family who immigrated here who know that history. And it's like, th th this is Animal Farm right here. Bernie Sanders is one of the pigs. That's why he thinks it's so great and why it's going to work so well. And, oh, look, they got the literacy programs and we're going to do that too. Well, think back to when we had Tiffany Justice on. Our literary programs aren't going so well, especially since COVID. You think that's not intentional? Because that's also what these regimes do. They don't want you to actually be smart. They want you to be boxer who can only remember A, B, C, D, and E. And then when you try to memorize, memorize, you know, the rest of the alphabet, you forget A, B, C, D, and E. Like, they want that. Just get back out in the field, boxer, and work harder. And it's it's almost like the polar opposite of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like if there was a giant turd sandwich with, um, I don't know, like a little dusting of uh, powdered sugar on top. Be like, well, don't you want that powdered sugar? So yeah. you should eat this entire sandwich, yeah, so which is sandwich. what essentially uh, Bernie Sanders is arguing for. You, if you want great literacy programs, we clearly need to bring in Cuban-style socialism writ large around the country because that's the only solution to fixing an education program that's not passing uh, up, up to snuff here. It's it's yeah. not passing muster. Um, and that's just a... phonics again, you know? Like, let's start there. <laughs> Man... I, we gotta go down the side track on this one. I was when I was in Tennessee uh, a month ago. Uh, I was talking to a woman there who's an activist, and she's big on the education front and talking about how they have. There's a whole line of thinking now where they don't use phonics anymore to teach kids how to read. It's supposed to be um, looking at the whole word and then sort of like guessing what it means oh. as opposed to sounding it out. It's like and, the common core of reading. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, she, and I mean, she would be able to explain a lot better than me, but she was like, you know, if, if you're reading something and uh, the it would be a sentence of like, you know, he rode a horse to town that day. Right. And you read it and be like, oh, well, horse makes sense in that. So I'm going to read horse. And it's like, but if you actually did the phonics, you realize it said pony. <laughs> uh, but like, well, you got the idea. So that's the the neural networking that we're able to, to do there. I'm like, well, the, the, the author clearly used the word pony, so you're not getting the message. Yeah, dude, this is – that's crazy. I, I did not know that. I mean, we homeschool. I don't know how long we'll be able to do that. I, I was taught to read with phonics, and I can't imagine some of the ways like that. I can't imagine. I could not imagine learning to read like that. Just hooked on phonics yes. work for me, man. I remember yeah. that. I remember yeah. those commercials. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a comedian named Brian Regan. You ever hear of that guy? I love him. He's great. Oh, he's great. He's he does. He's like, who get on phonics? Work it for me. <laughs> he is uh, he is very funny. He's clean actually. Too. He's clean he's like, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You mentioned Nate Pargazzi the other day, and that's. Like 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 Bargazzi, Brian Regan is also very clean, which I think takes a little more talent as a comedian, to be honest. It does. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of 
you're more broadcasting too. I think there's there's ample opportunity out there, but it does take some skill because you don't have the shock factor of the four letter yeah. words. Right. Well, now we're going to get to one of the main, uh, I don't know, motifs, main sayings that come from George Orwell's Animal Farm. And we're here on the American Radicals podcast, Saturday edition, part due of the Animal Farm study. And that is the pigs come to realization that the animals don't have the, uh, the intellectual firepower to remember <laughs> all seven commandments. So they're able to distill it down into a very simple phrase, four legs, good, two legs, bad. And what we'll come to find out is that even that as simple as it can, can be, um, complicated enough that it gives wiggle room for those who are not intellectually honest, but that's coming later on, and we're going to try to be spoilers free here. Um, I was—I actually wanted to go out from a different angle, and that is just the sloganeering that happens in uh, in the political system, and how you can have uh, a campaign for political office. And I mean, it—you know—people have bumper stickers. I get it, um, but at a certain point, it, it becomes this unstoppable force that people are unable to think about anything else other than just the mantra uh, and not examine anything. And uh, I could not think of anything more powerful than um, former President Barack Obama when he came in. Um, yes, we can. Uh, that refrain, I mean, more than the make America great again, right? Because make America great again, it's a lot of syllables. So they, they made it MAGA. Um, I, I think that, that that definitely is a strong slogan. But the yes we can man that was something that transcended um all boundaries more news politics we pop yeah. culture uh and uh you know i i looked and I, I hunted because i remember there were speeches where he just like he would say we did this and everybody in the audience would go yes we can and then we did that yes we can and he just <laughs> and it was ad nauseum this repetition of it and uh, people just plug their brains into the hive and download what they're told. And they're not really doing any critical thought. And I couldn't find the speech I was looking for, but I found something even better. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a taste um, and get your suspendables barf bag out. Um, we need to caution you ahead of time for this. This is from um, the vaunted musical stylings of Will I Am. It's called Yes, We Can. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed the trail toward freedom. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was sung by immigrants as they struck out the distant shore of pioneers and pushed westward. all right that's about enough for me oh yeah thank you i was like about to move on to barf bag number two good grief oh man i you know i've i've been uh i've been critical of people who are supporters of president trump uh, and i said you know it wasn't too long ago that uh, you were you. being sycophants you're critical of people being sycophantic of barack obama i mean you know you, you need to uh not not throw stones in, in glass houses here um, because there, there tends to be this 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 uh, allure of, of supporting a candidate and become making him some sort of an idol. Uh, and I think that that yep. borders on reality with people with Donald Trump um, and uh, in, in was similar to Barack Obama. And then I watched the Will I Am video mm. and I'm like, you know, next level, next level, <laughs> next level, ne every celebrity. Yeah. You know, like, like, I when I think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, Obama was like super idolized, and which, by the way, Joe Biden 
allegedly got more votes than Barack Obama. Give me a break. Does anybody actually believe that? Or is mail-in ballot, mail-in voting really that uh, that easy? But uh, I guess it is. But um, Obama was idolized. Like so many people like adored Obama because he's the first black president or whatever. Or honestly, like if you were to cut Will I Am and those other people out of that video and just listen to Obama, like he is a good orator. Like he he's good at that. His voice, his inflection, the way he does it. And uh, he obviously is like an enigmatic um, character because he's got the ability to draw people to him. So no wonder he rapidly rose from uh, community organizer to president of the United States. I mean, you don't hear that every day. But yeah, he was he was worshipped. And as fallible humans, we, for whatever reason, we, it's, it's, we are like, it's almost like we want a king, even in America. Like even go back to George Washington. It was on him to decide, I'm not running again. It wasn't law then that you could only do two terms. But he's like, we're not supposed to have a king here. So I'm not going to be president. I'm not going to continue to be president. Like, that's what we just fought a revolutionary war over. So we don't have a king. You know, earlier this week, um, I was on actually on President's Day when I, I spoke to a group and uh, I opened up with that. You know, was, I was like, happy President's Day to everyone. Did everyone know that this day was actually supposed to be a celebration of George Washington's birthday? Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't think that any particular president outside of George Washington deserves his own day because George Washington was the most important president. Um, by definition, if he failed, if he stunk at the job, like we're not a country, and he passed the ultimate test, the the Cincinnati test, right? He 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 just was uh, went back to his farm, was given the option to be a king and have his family be royalty in the country, and he said no. Uh, no man should have that, and he went back, and and that was one thing that King George had said. He said if he if he were to do that, he'll be the greatest man ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but the, the the laugh line that I had was, I said, you know, uh, so they they made Congress saw fit to to make President's Day the third Monday of February. I said, well, George Washington's birthday is February twenty second, which means by definition, George Washington's birthday can never fall on President's Day. Mm. So <laughs> what do we call the opposite of progress? Congress. <laughs> Indeed. You know, I think of uh, an obligatory, obligatory movie quote here from Spider-Man, like the old Spider-Man uh, with, with uh, Tobey Maguire and what was her name? Kirsten Dunst or Kirsten Dunst. No. Is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. But uncle Ben says to Peter Parker with great, with great power comes great responsibility. Think of George Washington there. He could have seized the power, but he went the responsible route and said, nope, I'm going to retire. Off to Virginia I go to my farmland and my wooden teeth, and uh, I'm done. You know, like, carry on. Carry on, America. Like, you can do it without me. And honestly, we've fallen. We've fallen so far from that, like, look at fdr he would have continued to serve 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 i use my finger quotes um but but yeah it's it's interesting like even in america like we have this this affinity for just i'll just give me a king give me give me a false god to worship and make them the leader of my nation and i think thinking of just washington in regards to the constitutional convention and uh, they were, he was like the indispensable man for them to have there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he, he he didn't speak a word until like the last day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, He's like, I'll just, just, I'm going to hang back. I'm going to let you all get it out. And then I'll come in. <laughs> and, you know, and it's one of my favorite quotes. He's let us raise a standard for the wise to repair. Um, you know, let's set a standard for people that are coming subsequently to us. Do better, do better then. But uh, let's set the mark as high as we can right now. Um, and uh, that's why he's, he will always be the greatest president. He, he, you can't, if he'd stunk at the job, there wouldn't have been a country for us to have other presidents to compare to. Uh, even though I still say that William Henry Harrison was probably uh, better because he died so fast. He didn't do any damage. <laughs> uh, <Yep. laughs> 
Yeah, it's the, been a uh, who's who of who can dismantle America since since Washington. All right, so I want to do a contrast here um, as we're back to back to the book um, between Snowball and Napoleon. Um, so we said Snowball was uh, Trotsky, and Napoleon is Stalin. Uh, and Snowball sets up these committees. He's like got a committee for everything, right? It's it's like the ultimate uh, big government bureaucrat, right? Like yes. oh, we need a, we need a blue ribbon panel over here. Yeah. We need an administrative authority over here. And he's trying to like unionize and and he's organized and he's all about having his fingers in everything. Yeah. Um, and then and Napoleon is really this is the first time we see him do anything much. Um, and that is he takes the puppies away from their mom to go and, and see about educating them himself <laughs> and uh you know where last uh, on, on on tuesday we talked about how you know education uh they're they're trying to indoctrinate kids they're using these german tactics to, to do it uh, napoleon recognizes that that's where power is going to be is he if he's able to uh, have a captive audience with the youth and cultivate them and indoctrinate them into what he wants he can use them um, later on, and as, as we see, but um, I think that it's a stark contrast into the one person who's the one character who's all about the uh, apparatus daily, day to day, and then the other one who's looking over the horizon and the power dynamics that are going to be at play there, and the different motivating factors for each character. Yeah, for sure. It's um, what's one of the one of the sections I I pulled up. Uh, it says it was always the pigs who put forward the resolutions. The other animals understood how to vote, but could never think of any resolutions of their own. Snowball and Napoleon were by far the most active in the debates, but it was noticed that these two were never in agreement. Whatever suggestion either of them made, the other could be counted on to oppose it. And I have a little bit more of it, but that's the part I think that stands out. You have Napoleon and Snowball who are on the same side, but they have different focuses. and. And, and yeah, just, uh, I don't know. I just, I kind of bite my tongue because like, I know where we're headed, but I don't want to get there. Cause I know there are some people who, who are reading along for the first time. Well, there's political rivalries within any movement, even within the same parties, little political party, there'll be disagreements. And I think that they're vying for authority and, you know, to, to ascend, to be the, the predominant figure within the within the movement so they're they're rivals with each other so they're just going to disagree just because because they want to get one up on each other and the way that the animals as they're watching these two go back and forth and debate like and not comprehending anything that they're saying they're just kind of like ping-ponging back and forth and they're just like whatever just tell us what to do make a decision for us and and that to me is uh revelatory about the way so many people are in our country today where they're just a addicted to their comforts and they don't want to think about issues that are, you know, hurt your brain. It's just too much to think about. I'll let the smart guys figure it out. You just tell me what to do. You know, do I need to stay home for 15 days? Can I, do I, should I close my business? You know, you tell me what to do. Yeah. Uh, And that um, has infected too many people and people are not taking on critical thought they're sort of shirking their citizen responsibilities many of these animals are if you don't understand the issues you should demand of the person who is theoretically your equal explain yeah, it to explain me explain it better yeah and yeah it's it's something that has really plagued america you know i i probably have seen it i don't know maybe maybe in a different way than than some or most americans just with like you know spending a year in iraq interacting with people there, spending a year in Afghanistan, interacting with people there. I especially think of when I was in Iraq, there was an election and the turnout was insane. And it was like, oh, these people actually care. Like, and then, you know, our interpreters, they were Iraqi. So, and my, my, the, the two interpreters we had in Iraq, I, I especially had a strong bond with, I feel like, and I think a number of guys in my platoon did. And I even have messaged with them like within the last year or so. Um, like I still keep minor in contact with them. They're both in, in the States now, but um, we don't understand what that's like, like not being able to vote and then being able to, to vote for what you want. Even if your guy loses, you still get a chance to go vote. 
in America, we have fallen into such comfort. And it's not a bad thing. It's great. It's great to be an American. But what we have lost sight of is the effort, the toil, the blood it has taken. You know, we were talking about George Washington. Just think of the blood that was spilt in the Revolutionary War alone. But then the others, the Civil War, Vietnam. And, you know, we don't need to debate whether we should have gone to these wars or not. But um, we did. And just to to be at this point where it really is that cycle of, you know, like good times, you know, create weak men, weak men create bad times, bad times create strong men. We're we're in that good times part still. I think we'll be here for a little bit longer, but it's it's getting sketchy. So much of winning is just showing up. You know, I, <laughs> I brought this up on an episode a while back and I said, uh, you know, that seven percent of Republicans in the state of Iowa picked the Republican nominee for president. I mean, think of that. Think of that. Nine, that means 93% didn't. That's, that's insane. I mean, that's that's roughly 55,000 people. That can't fill a college football stadium. No, it can't. Like, I mean, I don't know how big the Iowa Hawkeyes stadium is, but that place gets full every Saturday. <laughs> And, and the parking lot is probably overflow for people tailgating or whatever. And then include just the people in a 10 block radius at bars watching the game. Like you got at least 55,000 right there. Well, I mean, you know, in, in Daytona, we had the Daytona 500, 200,000 people. Think of that, dude. 200,000 for that. It's, it's 4X the number of people that shows what one major party's candidate is going to be for president. Yeah. Came bread to watch circuses. Bread and circuses, man. Like, that's it. That's it. I'm not saying these things are inherently bad or evil. Like, it's good to relax. It's good to detach from the politics or whatever. But that doesn't mean completely fully forever. And just never come back to it and let just let the pigs figure it out. All right. Uh, we got to get to two more things here as we're, uh, we're covering down on Chapter 4 of Animal Farm. Uh, and this is when Squealer addresses the animals and comes to the milk and the apples mm. uh, being dispersed, not equally amongst the animals. So Squealer says, comrades, you do not imagine, I hope, that we pigs are doing this in a spirit of selfishness and privilege. Many of us actually dislike milk and apples. I dislike them myself. Our sole object in taking these things is to preserve our health. I sure can't. of course <laughs> i know right it's it's so absurd because yes okay an animal farm it's milk and apples but you know squealer you see squealer on the nightly news when you turn it on and i don't care if it's if they got a d or an r behind their name you know squealer he continues he says uh milk and apples this has been proved by science <laughs> oh science our favorite. contains substances absolutely necessary to the well-being of a pig we pigs are brain workers the whole management and organization of this farm depend on us so now they've they they're flat out saying that our decision making is calling the shots here mm -hmm. so they've set themselves clearly in a position of authority over the other animals the whole equality notion is is sort of being dispensed with they're allowing themselves to eat things and now is the, when the gaslighting happens and he says it is for your sake that mm, we drink that first. milk and eat those apples yep. do you know what would happen if we pigs failed in our duty jones would come back mm -hmm. jones would come back surely comrades surely there is no one among you who wants to see jones come back doing Definitely it for your benefit not. yes it's for you it's always for you steve it's always for the betterment of your fellow animal you know you just get that that mrna shot because not it's not going to do you any good because you're healthy but it's going to do your fellow animal some good and yeah i i love to write in this section right before that paragraph it talks about well the, the first sentence says the mystery of where the milk went to was soon cleared up and i've been waiting for this since the end of chapter two, because it ended with, oh, we realized the milk was gone. Well, now it gets cleared up. And look, everybody, we we don't. We're in, look, we're in charge. We're going to sneak that in there. 
but we don't actually like being in charge. We don't really like milk. We don't really like apples, but we got to take them because we're in charge. I mean, we need it for our brain. It's science. Always science. Another false god out there is the science. But also here it says, um, all the pigs were in full agreement on this point, even Snowball and Napoleon. And then it's when Squealer went out and gave the speech that Steve just recapped for us. You know, I'm reminded of uh, every single person who runs for office after saying like, you know, I wasn't going to run. I wasn't <laughs> going to run. But then, you know, I was called to run like, like <laughs> yeah. this. I don't want to be in this position. I don't want to live in, you know, the most famous mansion in the world, the White House, right. and have yeah. people at my beck and call. I don't mm -hmm. aspire or have ambition to run the free world. <laughs> yeah. But I I had to. I had, I had to, to do it. <laughs> uh, Even though I told you I wasn't gonna do it, I had to do it. And we'll play uh we'll play another clip here. Um, and we've played this one before, but I do think it's worth it because uh, everybody's favorite Easter Island ahead. John Kerry, former climate czar, being grilled Maybe. on his milk and apples, <laughs> milk and uh, which apples. is his private jet. <laughs> and I think John Kerry, he uh, he kind of has a horse head, so he, you know, he maybe he'll be henceforth called boxer. Yeah, it's not a bad call. <laughs> Mr. Secretary, uh, in, in exchange with Mr. Mills, you uh, just testified under oath that you never owned a private jet. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to enter into the record uh, article here from February 15th of 2023 that the John Kerry family private jet was sold shortly after accusations of climate hypocrisy. Uh, Mr. Secretary, do you stand by that testimony Not that object. you've never I, owned or I personally, your family? I your family. personally, yes. My wife owned a plane and sold the and plane. You flew on that plane? Uh, not in a number of years, and, but I have flown on it, and sure. This article is not then inaccurate that your family owned a plane. You flew on a plane. My wife owned a plane. Here's the issue. Yeah. This isn't some kind of partisan gotcha. When we are asking Americans to make serious sacrifices as we transition for the common good, and your family and or yourself are flying around on private jets, that smacks of hypocrisy. It actually hurts your cause, Mr. Secretary, but I'll, I'll move on. But, I just but, want to know sir, from a record sir, standpoint. Afford me the, the right at least to set the record straight here. I do not fly on a private jet uh, I do. I do not fly. I fly commercially. Have you flown all of a private jet since you've taken this position? Just, just let me let me finish. I have flown five times in the last two and a half years on Millair, which you also fly on, sure. and or some of you who travel fly on five times. Otherwise, all of my trips are commercial. Have airlines. you flown on a private jet in a personal or official capacity since you've taken this position? Possibly once. <laughs> Possibly, but he didn't really want to, right, Garrett? It's not my milk and honey. It's my wife's milk and honey. I mean, milk and apples. <laughs> like, oh, dude. It's just, I, we could probably do a whole hour on that whole clip. You know, like, it just is, it, it's the pigs. It's the pigs. All right, well, we will close it out with the last point here, um, and it's sort of like downplaying, but uh, it's the battle of the cow shed, and, uh, and this will be more Im important later on in the story, but essentially Farmer Jones rallies some of his uh, compatriots, and they go and try to storm the castle and take the, take the farm back. The animals fight. They've planned. They've actually got a, a battle plan in place, uh, multiple levels. And uh, and they're able to, to to resist it. And then a couple of the animals demonstrate uh, great heroism. Uh, Boxer and Snowball uh, are, are leading the fight, and uh, and they are awarded some uh, some medals of valor uh, afterwards. And I believe uh, one of the sheep got some because uh, one of the sheep was killed, so it gets a posthumous uh, award, right? Gotta always award the dead, you know. But uh, this this battle will actually be more important later on in the story. So it's, it's we're not 
not really worth belaboring the the, the details of the battle. I, um, you know, I, I did some research on this because it just seemed like kind of a, you know, it's too significant to not represent something. Um, and there is dispute on what George Orwell was comparing it to. Um, more arguments are in favor of it's uh, the Russian Civil War that went on. Um, but uh, I, I think that the fact that there's these weird characters who are uh, a gentleman farmer and then one who's kind of a drunkard, who, um, they might represent other nations that were sort of trying to push back on the fledgling Soviet Republic to try to stamp it out in its infancy, and they were resisted. I think that that was the, generally what uh, what this battle of uh, of the cowshed was supposed to represent. Um, and, uh, and that will bring us to the conclusion of chapter four. Any uh, any final takeaways here on part two of the Animal Farm review? No, for me, um, you know, I wanted to read this last week. Uh, I forgot. I had it up, but I, I kind of forgot. And I think it really it really permeates throughout animal farm and it really permeates throughout our own lives, our own country. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 17, starting in verse nine. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds, like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch. So is he who gets riches by not, but not by justice in the midst of his days, they will leave him. And at his end, he will be a fool. And that stands out to me here. All the things we talked about today, all the things going on in our story, animal farm. Uh, I think if you let that rest on your mind and on your soul, um, you'll start to see like, Oh yeah, this is, this is another one of these old Testament prophets, which is just speaking speaking the truth to power. I mean, that's what they were doing. Uh, they were they were prophesying to the leaders of their nations. And these truths are, are permanent. That's why they come from God's word. It's permanent truth. And we're starting to see it bit by bit in Animal Farm, and we're going to continue to see it as we go forward into, what, chapters five and six for next Saturday. Chapters five and chapter six, you have been warned, folks. Make sure you do your homework for next Saturday on the American Radicals podcast. I uh, want to make sure we thank you very much for joining us today and, and thank you for participating in the book study. You know, I, I know we're, we're all grown ups here and, and getting uh, assignments like you're uh, a student uh, can be a little bit of a strange dynamic. But I know I really appreciate the conversation that we've been having. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that you all are, are getting a benefit out of it as well. And, uh, and we're just going to keep hammering away at it. So chapters five, chapter six for next Saturday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And, uh, and we will be back with you next Tuesday, noontime on Rumble. AmRadPod is the name. So it's rumble.com slash AmRadPod. Enjoy your weekend. been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the american radicals podcast follow us on rumble.com slash am rad pod